This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Leola Calzalai Stewart is the producer of the PBS documentary, The American Diplomat. I think The American Diplomat is about the efforts of early Black diplomats to create space for people of color and American diplomacy. She talks about their challenges and some challenges she's had along the way, too. I remember being in high school and a counselor making me feel a little less than. And it, I knew it was based on race. She gestured with her thumb and forefinger, creating a very small space. And I remember being in that meeting and just feeling like this small. Well, a sometimes emotional interview about her story and the American diplomat. Coming up in this episode of Colors. The black population in the U.S. One in 10 black Americans were born outside the United States. Add in their children, you know, who are the second generation Americans, 20% of black Americans are either immigrants or the children of immigrants. Emmanuel Felton, race and ethnicity reporter on the America desk at the Washington Post, says that's only a part of the story. But what we do know is that black folks experience the immigration system differently, like they experience America differently. Data show black immigrants are twice as likely to face deportation because of a criminal conviction and more more than three times as likely to be de- detained as their immigration cases pending in the court. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting. Injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. Gisela Perez-Kusakawa. I am Filipino-American and currently here at Washington, D.C. Hi, I'm uh, Jody Trani. I'm an Italian-American, born here in the United States. My name is Sadaha Savakumar. My ethnicity is Sri Lankan. I currently live in Pittsburgh, New York. My name is J.J. Green. I'm Black, and this is Colors. The Washington Post recently published a story that said one in 10 black people living in the U.S. are immigrants. That's according to a new study. Emmanuel Felton is the race and ethnicity reporter at The Washington Post, and he wrote that story. And he joins us on this podcast to talk about what this means. Emmanuel, you wrote a really fascinating piece in The Washington Post. uh, And this piece was something that I've gone back and looked at for reference on a couple of occasions. Can you just pick out a couple of the key points, key pieces of information, key elements that you learned in doing the story? I think what's really important is, you know, there's a lot of conversation about what is the so-called black experience, right? And um, 
I think a, a big piece that's been missing from that conversation is the immigrant experience, right? So one in 10 Black Americans were born outside the United States, add in their children, you know, who are these second generation Americans, 20% of Black Americans are either immigrants or the children of immigrants, right? So we have this this, this changing of what is the so-called Black experience in America, and it's becoming more and more an immigrant experience, right? And so we have that piece. And then also, and I think this is really what's important and is often ignored, is that Blackness is becoming more and more a part of the immigrant experience, right? But too often, Black immigrants are left out of the conversations, right? Like there, there's a lot of focus on immigrants from Latin America and Asia, But what we do know is that Black folks experience the immigration system differently, like they experience America differently, right? So data show Black American, Black, I'm sorry, Black immigrants are twice as likely to face deportation because of a criminal conviction and more more than three times as likely to be detained as their immigration cases pending in the courts, right? So we see this, this combination really of, of the, the problems with Black Americans and the criminal justice system and how that, um, combines and creates some uh, issues for Black American immigrants in the immigration system. You know, this is a really, part of the reason why this is so fascinating to me is the way in which immigrants, Black immigrants are perceived today uh, when you look at how it used to be for Black immigrants and Black Americans. Excuse me. There was a time, I believe this was in the 50s, before both of us were born. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was told the story by a historian um, who remembers a time, a particular incident, when a group of uh, basically African immigrants or visitors to the U.S. were at mm-hmm. Howard University, and um, they went into a, a lunch place to have lunch. During that time, African-Americans were not allowed Mm. into establishments with whites. These black, these, these African immigrants came in, sat down at the counter. The uh, host, hostess told them they would have to leave because they were black. They said, we are not, we are from Africa and they Mm. were allowed to stay. (laughs) And so I'm looking at that and looking at now and so it looks as though to me the experience of blacks who come here from other countries now has changed. The view of them has changed uh, as, as it relates to yeah. how race is pervade racism is pervade today. That's a really interesting story. I hadn't heard that one, but you know, what we, what we do know, what I do know is that legal black immigration was virtually impossible before 1965. Right. So the civil rights movement, in addition to creating Black uh, rights for African-Americans here in the U.S., it, it led to the reforming of our, or of our immigration system. And that reform of our immigration system opened up our immigration system for the first time to, to immigrants outside of Europe, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, before then we had these, you know, these little incidents of Africans coming in and they're not, they're not here as migrants, they're here as visitors and they were almost became honorary whites. But after 1965, yes, yes. we get we get real we get a flow of actual immigrants who plan to stay here. And so I think then yeah, I think the the 
1965 Immigration and Nationality Act really changed that, right? So for the first time, we're getting Black immigrants, and they're planning to stay. And they, they don't get that, that, that same treatment as visitors, as honorary whites, that the people who came before them did. Mm-hmm. Emmanuel, can you give us a sense of how the what the difference is between Blacks who are born in the U.S. and those who are immigrants when it comes to education and economics? Yeah, so black immigrants tend to be more educated, tend to be more likely to get to have a college degree by 25 than native born black folks. And black immigrant led households um, have about $12,000 or have incomes of about $12,000 a year higher than their native born black peers. But it's not all rosy, right? Like, so that's all existing. But at the same time, they're facing some of the same challenges, right? So Native-born Black folks and African immigrants or, you know, Black immigrants have about the same home ownership rate at about 40%, which is way lower than the 65% for the country as a whole. And so, yeah, there's definitely, there is a difference, but a part of that is because of the immigration system, right? So a lot of these newer Black immigrants are coming through uh, the diversity immigrant visa program which requires you to have at least a high school diploma when you get here, which means that, you know, they're more set up to get that degree by 25 um, because, you know, they, they were required to have education to even enter the country. So now, okay, you said that there, there are some seemingly important differences, et cetera, but one key difference is the racial experience, the discrimination experience. Um, mm. There's not much difference there based on what I read. That's what everyone I talked to spoke about, right? That no one can see your immigration status. So while you may have higher incomes and maybe more educated and maybe an immigrant versus a native born black person, you know, the, that initial response is you're a black person in America. And thus there, there are some issues around that, right? So, but yeah, I think the universal message I was hearing from the people I was talking to is that, yes, there are these differences when it comes to education, and and income, but but the the experience of racism in America is pretty universal to the black experience here in America, whether you're a native born or an immigrant. Where where are they, the black immigrants that have come to the U.S.? Where 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 is the larger number of them, or where are the larger numbers of them located? Yeah, so you know, increasingly they're spread out around the country, but there are there are large pockets, right? So here in New York City, we have over 1 million Black immigrants um, in the metro New York area. And about a third of all foreign-born Black Jamaicans live here, right? So we have a big Jamaican and Caribbean population here in New York. Down in Miami, um, which has the second largest Black immigrant population, there's a huge Haitian community. And then in, in recent years, we're seeing more and more immigrants coming from Africa versus from the Caribbean. Um, and so a large Ethiopian population in D.C., seeing a large number of African immigrants coming in into places like Minnesota, where they're being resettled as refugees. One of the things that I find really interesting is um, where these people are. And when you look at political power and when you look at economic power, buying power, et cetera, um, is some of the places where they are are maybe not necessarily places that have historically been uh, friendly to people of color. You look at the South, um, Houston or Dallas or Atlanta, mm-hmm. you know, um, and even places like Boston, 
you know. Um, right. right. So what what have you found from talking to people in those areas about their experiences living there? Not to, not to you know, n- not what used to be, what used to happen, but what's their experience today? Right. And I think what we're seeing is, you know, I wrote a story last month about Africa, uh, native-born Black folks moving down to those big Southern cities, Atlanta, Houston, Dallas. And I think a part of it is that might be where the opportunity is right now for Black folks generally. Um, just because the Northeast is so expensive, it is hard to get a foothold in a place like New York or D.C. Um, without having some of the the you know intergenerational wealth that our um, non-Black peers tend to have in this country. So, yeah, I, I think it, it is interesting to see where folks are moving. We are seeing that political power starting to increase, you know, there, but we're not seeing that necessarily outside of the, the historic um, pockets of immigration, right? So New York has a bunch of, there's a lot of political power uh, in the Caribbean community. Down in Florida, they just elected the first Haitian-American co- congressional member. So we're seeing that that political and economic um, power increase, but, you know, slowly um, proliferate to places like Atlanta, Houston, and Dallas. Yeah. You know, there, there's, there's, a, there's a situation in some places where, you know, um, there, there are calls for uh, property that was taken to be um, given back. Uh, over time. Yeah. And one of those places is in Florida. Um, and I know that you did some reporting there. Well, you know, there's, um, for instance, uh, the place where the Tampa Ray Devil Rays play. Um, there's the baseball stadium there. It's, it's my understanding it used to be a vibrant African-American community. Uh, mm-hmm. And now I know that there, at least in the last year or so, was some discussion about making whatever happens to that property, because I think they're going to destroy the baseball stadium uh, and making sure that that property in some way benefits uh, blacks in South Florida. Uh, Have you seen conversations like that springing up in other places around the country, um, giving back things or making right wrongs that were done in the past? Absolutely. And it raises some really interesting questions, right? Like I'm reporting on this commission currently looking at reparations. Like how do we repair the damage done to black folks in this country? And mm-hmm. it raises some really thorny issues, right? About, you know, there is this historical wrong done to black folks who have long, you know, a long history and, and generations of people here in America. Do we include African immigrants and, and Caribbean immigrants? And, and what's the best way to include them as we discuss what is owed to Black people here in this country? That is a very interesting you know, point that you mentioned there. Are there any answers that you've come across as, as, as it relates to that question about how the Black immigrants fit into this? No, I think that I think that no one has an answer yet. And I think that's what a lot of these current, you know, there's, there's a commission out in, in California that's discussing how do they do reparations. And and it's it's a really, you know, so there's one example in suburban Chicago. Yes. Um, Evanston, Illinois is doing reparations. And what they said is your family had to be here in Evanston in 1965. Yeah. Um, so in that case, they would exclude newer, you know, newer immigrants to the country. And so I think it's it's a fascinating conversation moving forward, especially when 20% of the black population now um, is either first generation or second generation immigrants. Yeah. You know, Cecily Fleming, 
in Evanston. Mm. Is she's been on this program? In fact, she was on the show about a year or so ago talking about that the beginning of that process, and you know yeah. there there was this discussion about you know how that would work, and you know we're still at the very beginning stages of it. And your colleague Michelle Singletary was on this program mm-hmm. as well, talking about how it should go. And I'm wondering, do you get a sense that this is fast-tracked or this is going to take a while for us to get to a point where black immigrants, U.S.-born blacks, are going to get back what belonged to them? Or, or let me just say this, the process for figuring out who gets what. Where are we in that process? We're very early on. Um, and, and it's unclear to me so far how, like, I think there have been a lot of conversations or the commissions form. But then the question is, how do we fund it? And, and you know, what is politically popular? Um, and so, yeah, it, it's a thorny path forward for the rep- reparations movement. And and one of the thorns is how do you handle, you know, this 20% of Black America that now, you know, doesn't have that long history of being directly um, persecuted by the United States government. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emmanuel, how do Black immigrants and U.S.-born Blacks get along? generally, to your knowledge? You know, I think there's a, that's an interesting conversation. I, I, I think, you know, I, I, you, you often hear that there is tension there. Um, but I, I think it is hard to paint that relationship with a broad brush. And um, I think the longer you're in America, the more you tend to, to see yourself as a Black American. Yeah. We're all immigrants. Right, yeah. exactly. By choice or, or yeah, by or by force, and you know that's a really difficult thing. You know, part to that conversation. What were some of the other important elements of your story um, that you'd like to share with us? Things that you learned, things that you think are important that we should focus on. Honestly, I think we hit them all. I was shocked, as in you know, this. I do a lot of race reporting. And I had no clue that it was up to 20% being first and second generation Americans. And I think that really starts to change the calculus on how we discuss what is the Black experience and how we cover that as reporters. So as we look at what you do next and how you continue to do your, your beat and your work, you know, as the race and ethnicity reporter at The Post, um, what do you find are the challenges for you? Honestly, it's, it's narrowing down because race is such the central part of of the American story. So it's like that I'm covering all of America. Um, so I'm working on a piece about reparations and how we do that and these commissions that have come forth. Um, and then there, there are always the stories of, you know, the, the inequities that exist um, across this country that you see repeated in city after city that I'm trying to really tell the narrative of how they formed and how, you know, how that power imbalance is maintained. What do you think is the most compelling story that you've come across on this beat that you can share with us? And feel free to take your time to tell it. But I mean, I'm really interested in what the most compelling story you've you've found uh, while you've been working on this. Oh boy, yeah, you know, I've been on this beat not for the post, but generally for the last ten years. So it's a long time and a lot of stories that I've told. But I think. What I've been thinking a lot about is the last big story I did about Black folks moving from places like New York, Chicago, um, Los Angeles back to the South and sort of how these Northern and Western cities for all of their progressiveness failed generations of Black folks 
who are still looking for a way to make it in America. And, and to do that, they're hoping that the answer is the South, which, you know, has not been the answer in the past. Um, but there's this constant looking and movement for where is good for Amer- Black Americans. And I think that is the story of our time. One of the things that I've found very interesting in my own um, work in the last year or two on this program is just looking at the the way in which uh, people view racism and systemic racism mm-hmm. and all of these issues, gossip, whispering, you know, exclusionary mm-hmm. uh, tactics and um, nepotism, cronyism. Those are all things that are completely accepted in this society. And those are things, in my opinion, that are the cornerstones of racism and, you know, mm-hmm. which 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 fuels systemic racism. So a lot of folks are engaged in these conversations right now about um, diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. But I'm starting to see a lot of folks who are not black, who are not of color, who were on board with this in the beginning. But now they're starting to sort of some people call it ally fatigue. They're starting yeah. to pull away from it. Are you seeing that? Are you what are you seeing? Absolutely. And I think what we're seeing though is an organized pushback against those principles, right? Like so much of this critical race theory conversation, I don't think would have existed if there wasn't this uprising after George Floyd, right? So there's always, you know, there there are two there, there's a fight in America of do we recognize our history and and, and do we do something to to undo the harms of the past? And um, and right now, I think the political winds are pushing against that 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 action. And so we see this this you know this pendulum spring back and forth. And the question is, will what happened after George Floyd died be more than a fad? And I'm not convinced yet that it will be more than a fad. Yeah, you know, one of my colleagues who now works at you know out west, he used to work here at, in Washington, but he works out. At the NFL, he's a senior podcast producer for the NFL, and he said he often wonders, what was it about George Floyd that made folks jump on board besides this idea of of seeing it, cameras, you know, making it public? Um, and he's still scratching his head about that, and he's concerned that, yeah, you know, this is just going to fade. So I guess the last question I'll ask you is, what do you see on the horizon? Yeah, I think the question is, can... Can America sustain its interest in, in undoing these profound inequities between Black and non-Black America? And, you know, I think there was a lot of attention paid to it when President Trump was in office. And, you know, he was out there saying things about African countries that made people really upset. And there was, so there was a lot of focus on race for those four years. Like, I don't think George Floyd would have happened without Trump in office. You know, my position, I don't think, would have happened without Trump in office. So the question is, without someone like that in the highest office in the land, will we continue to focus on this profound problem that we have? Thank you, Emmanuel. Yeah, of course. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. That's Emmanuel Felton, race and ethnicity reporter at The Washington Post. Stay tuned for some thoughts about race in America and details about our next guest. You're listening to Colors. I'm Kimmy Yong. Um, I'm a Chinese American. I'm uh, from upstate New York and based in New York City. For so many Asian Americans, our stories and our um, our pain 
has been largely discounted uh, by the mainstream media. And I, I think that, you know, we even in, you know, the beginning when we were working on the railroads and I, I don't know if you guys know about this, uh, the photo called the last spike. Um, yes. Which was, you know, it's 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 all white men celebrating the final spike going into the transcontinental railroad which was largely built by chinese workers and there's not a single chinese person in this photograph um they were not included even though they did most of the work uh and i, I feel that that has largely been um you know what we've seen in media for decades where the stories of asian americans have not been told um and a lot of the stereotypes and tropes have persisted. And so we, we come up today, um, you know, we see a lot of these hateful attacks and violence and pain. And I think it's been surprising for a lot of people, but it's it, it hasn't been that surprising for Asian Americans. We've seen it for a long time. Maybe this is one of the few times that other people have acknowledged it. But it's, it's definitely not been the first time that we've felt these kinds of attacks. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. If you have any questions or comments about Colors, send us an email. You can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. Marcus Jones is a black police chief in Montgomery County, Maryland. But this story transcends race. We had an incident in Silver Spring where we had an individual who was actually assaulted. And we have video that we actually see 11 people um, that are observing the assault in progress. And they do not call the police. There were plenty of videos posted on social media. These were young people. But Jones says they're not alone. Adults need to really think about this as well because we're seeing it amongst the adult population doing the same thing. Why do people do it? You know, I think it's the sensationalism of it all. I mean, it's almost as if to get some notoriety. He's now campaigning to change that mindset. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. Hello, my name is Gisela Perez-Kusakawa. I am Filipino-American and currently here at Washington, D.C. Hi, I'm uh, Jody Trani. I'm an Italian-American, born here in the United States. My name is Taraha Tavakumar. My ethnicity is Sri Lankan. I currently live in Pittsburgh, New York. My name is J.J. Green. I'm Black, and this is Colors. Time to wrap it up for this episode, and in doing so, I want to say to the people of Ukraine, we're standing with you, praying for you, and hoping the best for you, and for them and for every other war-torn country on the planet. There are many places that are going through very similar things. We all need to bond together to help them. And in leaving today, we want to say thank you to Natalia Solieva, to the Montgomery County, Maryland Police Department. Thanks to Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Joel Oxley, Michelle Boykin, Dorothy Gilliam, Gary Fitzgerald II, Tabassum Halim. And for the music, we want to say thank you to Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and to Offshane. And to all of you, most of all, thank you for listening to us 
And just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast DC, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.